Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. But I want to start this morning, we're going to look, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, and, and Samuel comes nine books into your Old Testament. So if you're wondering, well, where exactly is Samuel? It's not too far into the Old Testament, um, and we're going to be, spend quite a bit of time there today. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, this is where it, where it starts. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. So now we got these Philistines that we got to consider. What about them? I want to show you a map. The map shows you that Philistia was a border country right next to Israel. And so, as you might imagine, there were conflicts once in a while. And if the Philistines wiped out your soldiers, if you lived in a village where a battle might take place, things could go very, very badly for you. It would not be uncommon for them to come into your village after they have won a, a big battle and take everything that is valuable to you, your gold, your silver, your coins. You would bury that stuff in a field. Before you went to war, you would go bury that stuff somewhere where only you knew where it was so that you would protect it. So if the Philistines came through, they would not, uh, they would not take all of your valuable stuff. You just wonder how many families ahead of a, a big Philistine battle you know, would sit down, a dad would sit down and he would look at his kids and he would say, listen, your uncle's and your, you know, your brothers and I are getting ready to go into battle, and so it might be good, you know, he looks at his wife and he says, it might be good if you take the girls and you go stay with your sister for a while, because we, we don't know if we're coming back, we, we don't know what's going to happen, and if we lose this battle and they come through the village, it would be really bad if you were here, especially for our kids, especially for a little 13-year-old girl. And so, um, you know, if things went really badly, they, if, if things went badly, they went really badly in a situation like this. This battle is going to happen uh, about 1,000 to 1,100 years before the time of Jesus. Samuel's family story starts, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, it starts with a crisis. It starts with family drama. Uh, his, his, Samuel's mother is uh, unable to bear children, and every year she goes to this uh, tabernacle to do this festival and to make sacrifice and to pray and one time she's there she's not been able to have kids and and it's gotten to the point that that uh, this woman's name was Hannah it's gotten to the point that Hannah's husband has taken on a second wife for the purpose of providing him an heir and so um, this second wife is not good to Hannah she mistreats her she talks badly to her and so they're they're in a town called Shiloh where the tabernacle was and um, Hannah just really has a meltdown. She's crying out to God, telling him, listen, I, you've got to give me a son. I, I, I can't, you know, I need you to give me a son. And so she prays this sobbing prayer because she can't have children, and she tells God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Well, God does. God gives her a son, and she does exactly what she said she would do. She gives that child back to God. Samuel is is born to Hannah, and Samuel grows to be three years of age, which is about the time that they would wean them. And at three years old, she goes back to the tabernacle with her son, and she leaves him at the tabernacle to be raised by the priest, Eli. Can you imagine? And so Samuel becomes a temple helper. They give him a little priest outfit, and he's running around with a, you know, the looks like a little priest in training. And uh, you know, things are not good at the tabernacle, not at all. They're, the, Eli has, is the old priest, but Eli's got two, 
sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And we learned last week in our message that uh, the Bible refers to them as scoundrels. Okay, they're not good dudes. And uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff. Hophni and Phinehas are all kinds of messed up. The temple is, the tabernacle is a mess. Samuel grows up in the middle of all this, but Samuel is faithful. And he starts to catch the attention of the people, and he catches the attention of the Lord. And Samuel is growing up, and he serves quietly and faithfully. And by the time you get to chapter 3, or by the time you get through chapter 3, the reader is primed really to ask the question, well, what happens next in the life of Samuel? And what happens next to Samuel is that he disappears from the text. You get to chapter 4, you get to chapter 5, you get to chapter 6, there's no mention of Samuel. It is as if the, the camera lens has zoomed in and it is zoomed in on this family and it specifically zooms in on this one little boy and what's going on there in the tabernacle and all of the things that are happening there. And then it zooms out and it gives you a wide angle view. And what you get is a glimpse of the darkness that envelops the Israelites as war begins to develop around them during that time that Samuel is being raised. And so Samuel disappears for three chapters and yet what happens in these three chapters are critical to what Samuel does when he gets back and when he resurfaces in chapter 7. It says, now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And you're like, well, Brett, come on. I mean, the Israelites are like God's chosen people, right? I mean, that's, this is a slam dunk. I mean, if God is for these people, they shouldn't worry about anything. They're going to go into this battle. They'll take care of business. I mean, God is on their side, right? Let's go. Which is exactly what the Israelites thought. They would have thought the exact same thing. And then you read this in verse 2. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. How many? 4,000. Now, that's just a number to us. We hear that and, and that's just a number. But to them, that was not a number. To them, that's their sons, that's their husbands, that's their uncles, that's their grandpas, that's their brothers. These are men that are going to go off to war. These are family members that are not going to come back. They will not lead their households. They, you know, they, in that time, you, you depended heavily on the, the man in the house. He was was really important, and, and the ladies, you know, really depended on having a man in the house, and, um, and now they're gone. 4,000 guys do not come back, and the question that we might ask, it would be a very good question that they were asking is, okay, if we're the chosen people, then why did God let this happen? Great question. That's what they were asking. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? The soldiers come back into town and they say, listen, we were annihilated. The way verse 3 says it is when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They're thinking something has gone terribly wrong and, and we don't know why. They, they don't know the answer. But we have a pretty strong hint at the answer to that question and it can be summarized in one word and the one word is idolatry. Commandment number one for them in the Ten Commandments was, Thou will have no other gods before me. The Hebrew people had come out of Egypt where they had worshipped, you know, the, the, the Egyptians worshipped all kinds of gods. It was a very 
multiple god polytheism. In Egypt, you would have worshipped the moon, you would have worshipped the Nile River, you would have worshipped um, uh, Opus, the, the bull, you would have worshipped Hecht, the, the frog god of the Nile, you worshipped Isis. They were coming out of a culture of polytheism, multiple gods. And then you go, uh, you know, they go out together with Moses under his leadership, and they're going through the wilderness, they're out in the desert, and, and there comes this moment with God, uh, very much like if you've ever gone to a, a wedding ceremony, and you, what happens at a wedding ceremony is this couple gets up, and before a bunch of witnesses, she says, I'm not going to have any other guys before you, you know, you're it for me, and he looks at her and says, you're it for me. And uh, this is going to be an exclusive deal. And that's what happens with the Israelites. This thing is called the covenant in the desert. When they exit Egypt, right before they go into the land of promise, God says, hey, listen, we need to make a deal here. No other gods. I'm it. No other gods. Well, what happens is they leave Egypt and they come into a place called Canaan, where the predominant god is something called Baal. Baal was kind of the weather god. He was supposed to bring the rain. It was the, he watered your crops. If you did not have rain, you did not have bread. If you didn't have bread, you didn't eat. So that's the way they looked at it. And Baal had kind of a girlfriend idol. Her name was Asherah. You also see her referred to as Ashtaroth. And they would raise in their yards this pole. They would put this pole in their yards. It was called an Ashtaroth pole. She was the goddess of fertility, and so you would worship Asherah and Baal, and that was kind of like, you know, we're worshiping these two, we believe if we'll worship these two, it'll make our crops grow, and it'll make our families grow. And Israel had gotten sucked into Baal worship, and they had gone into this battle, and they are destroyed, and they're wondering to themselves, why has God not kept his end of the bargain? And God would say, hello, I kept my end of the bargain. My end of the bargain is, if you get attacked by all these other countries, you go talk to Baal about it and see what he has to say. Go see if Asherah will bail you out. Go see if Asherah wants to listen to you talk about what you've just done. Don't think that I'm going to continue to protect you and bring you favor and bring you blessing when you are defying me and you're mocking me and you're moving away from me. And so this is the moment, after this stunning defeat, where you're supposed to quiet your heart and, and you're supposed to go to God and say, God, we blew it. You're supposed to return to the Lord and you're supposed to say, we're sorry, can we come back home again? But that is not what they did. What they did was to say, I know what went wrong. God was not with us in battle. We need to make sure that the next time we go into battle, we have God with us. So now, when they go into battle the next time, they go get the holy furniture out of the Holy of Holies. They go, they go get the thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Ark means box. Inside the box was the Ten Commandments. And on those Ten Commandments, the very first one, thou will have no other gods before me. And they had all kinds of other gods. Now you might want to rethink taking the Ark into battle when you just got waylaid and when the, the very box that you're carrying has written on a tablet inside you should have no other gods. And they're kind of making this ark a, a, a god. So they go into battle. They get wiped out. Eli is the priest. He's an old man now. He's, he's nearly blind. He's, he's really old. And he's sitting along the road. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, these two scoundrels, 
They have gone and gotten the Ark of the Covenant. They are marching into battle with the Ark. And a messenger comes running up to Eli, and he's weeping, and he's crying. And Eli says, hey, what's going on? And the messenger runs up to him and says, our army has been decimated. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have died today. And not only that, they have taken the ark away from us, and it's now with the Philistines. Well, when Eli hears this, particularly about the ark of the covenant being captured by the Philistines, he is devastated. And you're like, Brett, he cared more about the ark than he did about his sons. You've got to understand how important this ark was to them. He's devastated. He loses his balance. He falls back and he breaks his neck. And Eli dies the very same day that his sons die. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Samuel told him that was going to happen. God came and told, told Eli that that was going to happen. Phineas is one of the sons, has a wife who is pregnant, and she hears that her husband is now gone. She hears that her father-in-law is gone. Her brother-in-law is gone. And she goes into labor, she delivers a boy, and she starts to die in childbirth. The woman attending to her says, hey, you've got a baby boy, you've got to name him. And before she passes from this world, she names him. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. The word Ichabod means no glory. So we have a, a threat in the Philistines. We have a, a response. Let's get the holy furniture out and let's take that into battle with us. And now you have a name, Ichabod, no glory. The glory has departed and it is, it's gone to be with the Philistines. But the truth is the glory had departed a long, long time ago. I want you to let that name linger a little bit. I want that name to just kind of hover over us for a minute. Ichabod, no glory. And someone might say in here this morning, well, Brett, there was a day that you could have put that word over our house. No glory. There was a day that that could be put over my entire life. No glory. It could be something that could be put over some churches in the country today where the glory's been gone a long, long time. The story opens with Ichabod, no glory. The glory has departed. These are dark days. Samuel is nowhere to be found in this story. You say, Brett, what happened to the ark? Well, uh, the way they saw the world in, in, the, in those old days, and really, in order for you to read your Old Testament and understand it better, you need to understand this about the way they thought. The way they saw the world was when they went to war with someone else, if they, it was like our God is going to war with your God, and if we win, our God is bigger and better and badder than your God. And if you beat us, then your God is the God that's the big bad God, and, and that's the one we serve. So that was their mindset. And it wasn't just that the Philistines had defeated the Israelites, it was that the Philistine God had defeated Yahweh in their eyes, the God of Israel. So when you won the battle, you would bring something back that represented the God of the people that you had just destroyed. In this case, it would have been the Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant away from the Israelites. And you would bring that into your temple, and you would put it in front of your idol, and it was like, our God beat up your God. There were five main cities in Philistia. One of them was the city of Ashdod. In the city of Ashdod, there was something called the Temple to Dagon. And Dagon... Was, uh, he he was, had the upper body of a man, and he had the lower body of a fish. And, and so you just think merman. <laughs> um, 
They bring in the Ark of the Covenant. They put it before Dagon as if to say that the Ark of the Covenant, that the Israelite God is bowing to the God of Dagon. They bring the Ark of the Covenant in. They leave it there. And, and the next morning when they come in, the, the, the God of Dagon has fallen over on his face. His face is into the dirt. And it looks like he is bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. And they walk in, they see that, and they go, huh, that's, that's interesting. Let's, let's set that back up. So they set that back up. They come back the next morning. Not only is it knocked over, but its, its head has been knocked off and its little flipper arms have been knocked off. And, uh, you know, that's when they start to realize, hey, we've got a problem. Um, somebody looks around and says, hey, have you noticed that not only did, did that happen, but we've got people that are getting sick. We've got bad stuff going on in our city. And it's all started to happen since that box showed up. I mean, we, we need to get rid of that box. So they decide to send the ark next door. You find all of this in 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. They send the ark of the covenant to Gath. And the people in Gath begin to get sick. And things start to happen. It's nothing good is going on in Gath. So the people of Gath decide, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll send it to Ekron. We'll send it to the city of Ekron. Well, the people in Ekron, they, they hear about it, and they meet them at the gate, and they say, no way are we letting that thing come in here. We've heard about what happens wherever that thing goes. Don't you dare bring that thing in here. And the message being sent by God is, don't think that I am wimpy and weak. You, you may have defeated my army, but do not trivialize me. Do not take me lightly. I am a force to be reckoned with. These people could still remember. They had heard the stories about when the Israelites left Egypt, how God had waylaid the Egyptians at the Red Sea. So they put some gifts with the ark. They take a cart and a couple of cows. They hook the cows up to this cart and, and put the ark on it, and they just kind of point the cows in the direction of Israel. No driver. And these cows start walking. Well, there's some Israelites that are out harvesting in their field and they look up and they see cows coming their way. They realize there's no driver. They look a little closer and they realize the Ark of the Covenant is on this cart that's being pulled. A bunch of them look inside the Ark and when they do, they are instantly killed. They all die. And again, it is as if God is saying, hey, treat me seriously. I am not to be tampered with. I am here and I am good, but don't think that you can treat me casually. There have been all kinds of regulations about how to handle the ark. You covered it a certain way. You did not look inside of it. They knew that. These guys knew better than to pop this thing open and look inside like it was full of jelly beans. You don't do that. What happens next is like a wake-up call. Everybody hears the story about the ark coming back. There's a wake-up call. And then chapter 7 opens with these words. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Now, this is not a, 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 a full-on, everything-is-back-to-normal repentance kind of thing, but it is a beginning. It is a start. Then all of the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. What do they do here? What they're doing is they're adding something to their life. Someone in here this morning might say something like, Brett, this is so me. You know, I've, I've returned to God after going through a, a difficult season where I've really blown it, and I'm just now starting to make my way back to God. Somebody else might say, you know what, Brett, for the first time in years, I'm praying on a daily basis because of everything going on in our life, and, and I've ignored God for so long, and I just don't want to do that anymore, and I've, I've started to lift up God's name, and I've started to try and pray every day, and, and I'm just asking for his mercy as we go through this mess. 
Eli, their head priest, is dead. He has two sons who were scoundrels who were in line to succeed him. They're dead. Where will the people turn for guidance? And their hearts are are starting to want to turn toward God. Where are they going to turn? That's when Samuel comes into the picture. Samuel is suddenly back in the spotlight. Someone might ask the question, why didn't Samuel take control before now? And the answer to that is, he wasn't in charge. Samuel is faithful, but he is faithful in the shadows. Sometimes being faithful in the shadows means that God is grooming you to be faithful whenever you hit the spotlight. Samuel begins to speak and lead, and after being absent in the story for three chapters, he resurfaces, and this is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks. So no longer are we just talking about addition, now we're talking about subtraction. The people said, we need to have God in our lives. And Samuel said, you know what? You want God in your lives, something has to go. If you want to serve the Lord and Him only, there are some things in your life that need to be removed. This is the hard part. Many of us want to add God into our life, but when God comes into our life, He starts to subtract certain things. Samuel doesn't just talk to them about addition. He talks to them also about subtraction. Some things have to go. There's a phrase in that verse that's interesting to me. It says, so Samuel said, all, said to all the Israelites. So he, he gets this word out to all the Israelites. Here's the question. How do you do that without a website? <laughs> How do you do that without a video blog? How do you do that without email, without text messaging, with no cell phone? How do you do that with no email, no internet, no TV, no radio? How do you talk to all the Israelites? And the answer is you do it by traveling. You travel long distances. You go to all these cities and villages. You have this conversation with different people. Sometimes they, they would come to Samuel. You know, a group from Bethel comes in and they want to talk to Samuel. And Samuel says, hey, you guys are from Bethel. I've been to Bethel. And just outside the, the village gate there at Bethel, there's, a, there's an altar to Baal. Is that, is that altar still there? And they say, yeah, that's still there. And he says, well, if you truly desire to return to the Lord, you need to knock that thing down. That's got to go. That can't stay. Another group comes in. Hey, where are you guys from? We're from Gilgal. I've been to Gilgal. That Ashtoreth pole still in the middle of the village there at Gilgal? Yes, sir. It's got to go. Take an axe to it. Get rid of it. Cut it down. You want to return to God, you can return to God. But you can't return to God as long as that is there. There's got to be a subtraction. You just wonder how many dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of conversations that Samuel had just like this. Verse 4, so the Israelites put away their bales and Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Now, idolatry in Samuel's day, and really in the Old Testament in general, really, as you consider even the Greeks and the Romans, it was easier to know when you were involved in, in idol worship then and when you weren't. Uh, if, you went to Baal, if you went to a Baal temple and you had taken one of your goats and you sacrificed a goat to an altar at a Baal temple, you knew that you were worshiping Baal. There was no question about that. But the kind of idolatry that we can experience today where we take something or someone and we give them the place of God in our life, sometimes 
that happens and we don't even realize that we've done it. Sometimes that can be so subtle and it can happen so quietly and, and really you just don't even notice that, it's, that something has removed God out of the way and, and we've allowed something else to take its place. Um, I think we have a harder time knowing when we've done that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. It's talking about idolatry. In our finances, in our purchasing, in, in the stuff we buy. I, I think it's a little tougher for us to know when money has become our God. In the next several moments, it's going to take some incredible spiritual insight on your part and some spiritual discipline for you to just say, you know what? I think I know what my competing God is. And that's really the point of what I'm going to say next. I need you to know, I need you to just say, oh my goodness, I know what my competing God is. I've been, um, I've been hammering this app on our webs on our, uh, for your phone. And if you don't have that, I'd love it if you'd go out and get that app. On that app, uh, during this series, we're giving you notes. You can go bring up the app, and you find the, the logo, the True Blue logo for this series. You hit that square, and the notes will come up for you. And there's a, there's a section for every day of the week, Monday through Friday, that coincides with this message. And it just is a way for you to work through a, a little quiet time. It wouldn't take you long to do that. I think it's on Tuesday, as you're working through that, you're going to encounter a question and the question is, what in your life competes with God receiving your total devotion? And, and if you just answer quickly, nothing, you, you might want to rethink that. Most of us, when a preacher like me starts talking like this, our mind kind of defaults to money. You know, we say, well, maybe money is my God. But it might not be money. It might be your position. You may take great pride in whatever position you have. You might take great pride in the reputation that you have in your community or at work or with a team or, or at school. For some, it's control, and when things are out of control, they just they, they feel strange, but when they're in control, they feel bulletproof, and they, they almost become a control freak. The question I'm asking you this morning is this. Where is your security? What brings you peace? Where, where do you really discover and highlight your identity? What gives you identity? Is it your marriage? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it that your kids are safe? Is it the bottom line of your bank account? Is it your job? Success? Think about what truly brings you peace. Is it order? Control? Money? Is it looks, fitness? If it's anything other than God, you have an idol to deal with. Their idolatry was easier to identify than ours, but you need to be able to answer the question, what in my life competes with God receiving my total devotion? You say, Brett, why is it so hard for the Israelites to pull away from Baal and Asherah worship you know, those people were idiots. Two words, really. Money and sex. 
money and sex. A component of Asherah worship uh, was temple prostitution. You would go to the next village over, you would come up to the Asherah shrine, you would pay the goddess a, a, a fee, a tribute, and uh, the person that was working there would say, go pick out a girl and, and go to one of the back tents, and uh, you know, they would, there would be a, you would do what you do with a prostitute, trying to be delicate. <clears throat> Here's the point. It could be intoxicating. If you were in the practice of, of going to a Baal temple or an Asherah temple where they believed that their crop production and their family production was tied to the fertility that came from worshiping those particular gods uh, and there was an erotic component to it, your brain just went right out the window. The people were not really thinking with their brains, and, and, and pulling themselves away from this is very, very challenging. When you get sucked into something, especially on an erotic level, it becomes an intoxicant. And when it is illegitimate and it is out of bounds, getting out of it becomes much, much tougher than it is to get into it. I think it was very, very difficult for these people to just turn this off in their life. I think it was really a uh, very hard thing for them to do. And, and that can be helpful to know because some of us might say, you know what, Brett, for me, money has been an idol for me for, since I was 12 years old. And our family lost a house. And we looked up and we were pretty much on the street. And, and I vowed that day that that would never happen to me again. And on that day, money became my security. Brett, you have no idea how deep this goes for me. For the Israelites, this went very, very deep. And Samuel had a conversation, and he had another con He's having conversations with all these people. And Samuel said, you want to come back to God? That's not going to happen without some, some kind of uh, subtraction. It's not just about adding God. You've got to subtract some things. Something has got to go. Get rid of your foreign gods. And one by one, village after village, they actually began to do it. They started to cut down their asterisk poles. They started to get rid of their Baal altars. And then there's this groundswell where Samuel says, okay, forget the one-on-one -on -one conversation. We're going to have one great big meeting. We're going to all gather at the same place. And they gather at a place called Mizpah. For Samuel 1, uh, 7, verse 6, when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And you read that, and you go, what? What is that all about? And what they're doing is, as these people gather together, this is kind of like a marriage ceremony. Uh, they've got this water, and it's going to be poured out before the Lord. And as the water comes out, it hits the ground, and it starts to get soaked up by the ground. It's their way of saying, God, we are yours. The same way this water has hit the ground and been soaked up to the ground, and we can never get it back again, it's gone past the point of return. We are yours. We, we're, we're never going back. They pour their hearts out to God, and there's this sentence in there that is so valuable. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed six words. We have sinned against the Lord. When you find yourself neck deep in idolatry, these are powerful words. When you realize that you have made something a God in your life that should not be there, these simple words are powerful. I have sinned against the Lord. It's called confession. This is a massive meeting. There are lots of Israelite men there. 
the Philistines have spies and they're watching these men gather. And to the Philistines, this does not look like a revival service. This looks like a a time where they're beating the drums for war. They think that the Israelites are gathering to go to war against them. So the spies send back word and they say, hey, listen, they're getting ready to attack us. Now, I doubt seriously that any of these men, these Israelites, have their shields or their swords or their spears with them. They are not prepared for war. And all of a sudden, they're in this process of returning to God and repenting, and they're trying to get right with the Lord, and somebody comes running up out of breath, and they say, listen, the Philistines are attacking us. But something interesting happens this time. The people tell their faithful servant Samuel, pray for us. Don't stop praying for us. And Samuel starts to pour out his heart on behalf of God's people. Perhaps God will intervene on our behalf. God, we are here. We have poured the water out. We are back to you. We have gotten rid of our Baal altars. God, would you please intervene on our behalf? Here's what they didn't do. They didn't run inside the, tab- in, inside the tabernacle and grab the, altar, the Ark of the Covenant and take that into battle with them. Instead, they threw themselves on God's mercy and they trusted him. And in the following verse in chapter 7, you read that the Lord thundered against the Philistines. You say, Brett, what's the significance of that? Baal was often shown with lightning bolts in his fists. And so if you're the, uh, the Philistines and you're attacking this other army and lightning starts to, and thunder starts to happen all around you, you start to freak out. These guys are thinking to themselves, oh no, they've got the Ark of the Covenant back. Their God is strong. We, you know, we know what it did before. And the Philistines flee and they're routed that day. And then we read this in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. We have no idea the size of this rock. We don't know what the dimensions were, but back then you would often take a pillar or a stone of some kind, a column, to commemorate a significant event that had happened, and they set it up as a stone, and Samuel names it. He says, it's Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. So far, historically, so far, geographically, the Lord has helped us. So they went from Ichabod to Ebenezer. There's a crisis The Philistines attack. There's a response. In chapter 4, they bring out the holy furniture. They bring out the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 7, they cry out to God. There's been a change. In chapter 4, it ends with the word Ichabod, no glory. The glory has left us. In chapter 7, it ends with the word Ebenezer. To this point, the Lord has helped us this far. Maybe this could be a season in your life for a name change, where you go from Ichabod, no glory, to Ebenezer. The Lord is my help. Maybe we all need a stone in our homes or in our offices, on our desks, that reads Ebenezer. God's help. And it commemorates a change of heart and a change that ends in a changed relationship with God. Someone might say, you know, Brett, success used to be my God. And then my business went under and I got suicidal and nothing was going right for me. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that I had made success my God. And now I'm back on my feet. 
but that there are things that are different now. I'm well employed, but listen, Ebenezer, God is my help. Success is a horrible mistress. Brett, my wife, and I still fight, but not as frequently, and not for as long, and not with as much volume. We still fight, but it's gotten a lot better. We've come a long way. You know what? You could put a rock right there. Ebenezer. God has helped us to this point. God has helped us this far. We have some people in the room this morning that have broken away and walked out of some very, very dark things in their life. And it sucked you in, and it chained you, and you couldn't get out. And you got some help, and you got extracted out of that mess. You could put a rock there that says, Ebenezer, the Lord has been with me this far. What have you identified this morning that you have replaced God with? What is the thing that is competing for God's attention? You say, that's it for me. That's the thing. That's the, I have allowed that to get first place in my life, and I've got to s- subtract that. Maybe you need a rock. Maybe you need to go home and find a, a stone and write Ebenezer on it, put it in your garden, put it in your landscaping. We've got some little rocks up here on the stage. And maybe this morning as I've been talking, you, you kind of identified, this is the thing for me. This is, that's the thing that's replaced God, and I want to remove that. And you want to repent. I want to challenge you this morning. The band is going to play a song. <clears throat> it's very familiar to you, but it has this word Ebenezer in it. Here I raise my Ebenezer. The Lord has been with me thus far. As they're playing, and Shelby is singing for us this morning, Maybe you would get up out of your seat and come and get a rock. And maybe you would take that home with you and put it someplace where as you get ready in the morning, you look at that and you're reminded, no, no, I'm going to subtract that today. That does not take the place of God. You put that on your desk in the office to be reminded, hey, this cannot replace God in my life. But it might need to be a a public thing for you where you get up and you come and get a rock that says Ebenezer. I challenge you to do that. If if you don't want to do that and you're like, Brad, I I just don't want to do that. We've got some rocks for you on a table in the back. But for many of you, you need to make this a public thing. It needs to be a public repentance thing where you say, you know what, that is not happening anymore. I'm going to go from Ichabod, no glory, To Ebenezer, the Lord has been with me to this point. And you can take this home as your reminder.